Good afternoon. It's Friday the 5th of February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, vaccine news and a little bit of video from the House of Commons yesterday. There was uh, vaccine questions taking place. Uh, and uh, Nadim Zahawi, who, of course, vaccines minister, was, uh, well, he had this to say. Um. On uh, BAME and ethnicity, the NHS now uh, collects the, obviously, ethnicity data and we're publishing it. We're doing uh, an enormous amount of work um, across government, but also uh, with, with the NHS to make sure we bring in local government so that we can uh, begin to share data uh, with local government. And I, for one, uh, would very much welcome us working much more closely with local government, between the NHS and local government, so that we can identify you know, to individual level, uh, the people that we need to reach to protect um, as soon as uh, possible. I want to see CCGs sharing data with MPs. I want so that's quite an incredible statement. He wants to see clinical commissioning groups, NHS clinical commissioning groups, sharing data with MPs. He wants to see data shared with local authorities. Uh, he went on to talk about door-to-door uh, -door. Uh, going to, to people's doors and trying to, you know, if they're vaccine hesitant, in inverted commas, uh, and going to persuade them of the truth about vaccines. No, they um, made a, the, a specific point about that, that the, those who haven't been vaccinated try to identify them and to then convince them. So, yes. in a sense, track them down and then convince them. Uh, Mike, it doesn't take a genius to work out where that potentially could lead uh, beyond the sort of convincing uh, that they're talking about into more enforcement. That's what it seems to me like they're enabling that sort of thing. Uh, in, indeed, and this uh, this is a new uh, level of data sharing that we already have, the most egregious data sharing of our health records with all and sundry, it seems, and the Information Commissioner's Office is really doing nothing about that. Um, and, uh, well, we're supposed to still have a GDPR-style uh, regime in this country, even though we've left the European Union. Um, so the question is, where does that stand? Where this data sharing with MPs, data sharing with local authorities? Um, it seems that there are no limits on this whatsoever. So where is the Information Commissioner's Office in this? But uh, sticking with the vaccine situation, it gets even better. Now, for those of you that are not in the UK, that perhaps don't know what pick and mix is, uh, used to be when you were children, you went into the supermarket and there was a, a whole wall of different kinds of sweets and you could pick in, uh, whatever you wanted off that, put them in a bag, uh, weigh them up and then pay for them. Uh, but we've now got a pick and mix vaccine situation uh, going on because uh, patients are, are, not, have, are now being invited to patients uh, according to the government press release, are now being invited to take part in a new clinical study which launches today. Uh, and so people will be able to get a mixture of COVID-19 vaccines for their first and second dose. So there's seven million pounds of government money going into this uh, clinical study, as they describe it. Uh, there'll be eight different arms testing eight different combinations. So I'm sure they just by chance chose that word. Eight different arms testing eight different combinations. So two doses of Oxford vaccine 28 days apart, two doses of Oxford vaccine 12 weeks apart, that's a control group, uh, two doses of Pfizer 28 days apart, two doses of Pfizer uh, 12 weeks apart, and then a mixture of one dose Oxford, one dose Pfizer uh, 28 days apart, and one dose Oxford, one dose Pfizer 12 days apart. Uh, and then you might have the Pfizer the first dose followed by the Oxford dose, or you might have any combination of, of whatever they feel like. It is just uh, getting ridiculous. What kind of ad hoc uh, quackery is this? Well, just, they want to just throw different vaccine. Apparently, they have different ingredients, right? They would throw them together. And well, in the case see of what... Pfizer and Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca, they're completely different technologies. So just see what happens, chuck them all in together, see what happens. It's kind of like this uh, mosh pit of corporate uh, products. Uh, so it, it, you, they're running ex an experimental rollout on the general population. They're effectively doing their phase three in the general public, right? Well, this it's, is this it's is not a, being this done is, in a controlled clinical uh, setting. We're talking about the the release of the vaccines that we're currently seeing. That that is absolutely true. Although this is a specific separate clinical study, there's going to be 800 people involved in that. Uh, is 800 people enough for a study like that? Probably not. Why would you want to do a study like that? And by the way, when this when this all started with the vaccine conversation, like, did you hear anybody from government 
or from the pharmaceutical industry or from the Oxford team say that you'll need two doses? When, when did that come into the conversation? Only recently, right? Uh, no, no, from the, from the clinical trials were based on two doses, uh, but we've now extended the, di the distance between those two doses. So, so what was authorized for, for, the, for the rollout, for the temporary authorization of the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, was based on a particular time period between the first and second dose. That second dose has been pushed back for three, you know, two, two extra months or so. Uh, and that, that was not part of the, uh, the approval by the um, uh, MHRA. So uh, There's also talk of a booster shot later as well. Oh, there will, yes, there will and, be. And the flu jab, that wasn't a two-dose vaccine, was it? It was just a single, right? Uh, at this point, that is a single dose, so yes. Where, where is this coming from now? Is, is, is the coronavirus that much different? Uh, that it requires multiple doses. Uh, These are fundamental questions. I'm just throwing that out rhetorically uh, to the experts. Quite, quite reasonable. Quite reasonable. But look, you know, the issue of vaccine uh, mort uh, mortality and vac you know deaths caused by vaccines continues to uh, to, to raise its ugly head. Uh, so here, here is uh, uh, Rizzo International. Uh, that's uh, obviously not in English. So let's turn it in into English. European Adverse Reaction Reporting Database says Pfizer vaccine may have caused 438 deaths so far in Europe. Uh, that's a number. Uh, whether it's accurate or not remains to be seen. Uh, of course, here in the UK, we don't have any such numbers. Why is that? Uh, because the MHRA doesn't feel that we need to know. Kind of important, isn't it, from a public health, a public safety, public interest? Uh, you might think so. Point of view, especially since they're really aggressively rolling out these uh, new vaccine products where they rushed rushed through the uh, the testing protocols and bypassed animal trials and yes. things that normally take four to ten years. They managed to uh, squeeze into, what, eight months? Um, and so because of that issue, uh, of course, they've had to roll out the influencers and the uh, celebrities in order to get the jab in the arm and convince us all that it's safe to do. But has it been safe to do, Patrick? Well, this is the problem, Mike, uh, and I'll just direct people to this story here. Who is Hank Aaron? If you're, if you're watching from the United States, you'll know he's probably the, one of the most, if not the most celebrated uh, baseball player, one of the most celebrated professional athletes in the United States in history of U.S. professional sports. And uh, on, this was on January 6th, Mike, uh, and this is what they did. They rolled out Hank Aaron taking his COVID-19 vaccine. I think he took two doses of the Moderna vaccine, uh, the mRNA vaccine, and here he is. And so they, they're very quick, Mike, to use these celebrities, to use these icons, especially the, the older uh, celebrities and, and heroes and national icons. But uh, Mike, just not long after that, you didn't see this, it, no fanfare in the press about this story. It was very quietly drifted out. Hank Aaron dies, uh, this is actually on January 22nd, not January 6th, that was the previous story. But mm. Uh, just a couple of weeks later, uh, he dies uh, at the age of uh, 83. Uh, so, you know, he just had the vaccine, he died, and we're just drawing a correlation there. We don't know if the vaccine actually caused his death, but what I'm saying is, on the front end, uh, the, the, the government, uh, the health ministers, the press are very quick to want to use uh, faces, use famous faces to promote the idea of max vaccination. And then if they happen to die after that, then all of a sudden, uh, no, you know, no story there. Indeed. They just kind of brush it under the rug. And this is uh, Del Bigtree, uh, who is the host of The High Wire, which has been banned from YouTube. And he said, how long would Hank Aaron would have lived uh, had he not been lied to about the safety of the experimental COVID-19 vaccine? What a tragedy. All right, uh, rest in peace, Hank. You are truly a hero and a legend. Of course, everyone's going to agree with that. He was a great uh, professional athlete. He broke the color barrier in many ways. He mm. was the home run champion in U.S. baseball. I mean, a legend. And what a sad way. And we saw this also with Larry King, who passed away recently, mm -hmm. the uh, famous radio and talk show host. Uh, he died of COVID at the age of 87. Larry King had multiple bouts with cancer, multiple heart bypass surgeries. I mean, he was literally through the wars mm -hmm. uh, physically. What a tremendous career, amazing, iconic person and a f wonderful uh, life that he led. But you know, from a health point of view, he fought through, he had just about every comorbidity you could possibly imagine at the age of 87. What happened when he died? 
COVID. Mm. So in a, I think the press are using people uh, in, a, in a kind of a propaganda way. Uh, they're using famous people, national icons, heroes, to sort of promote the idea of the pandemic, but now they're using it really shamelessly in many cases, I think, to promote the, the idea of mass vaccination. And are these vaccines actually safe for older people? This might be an area, Mike, that's up for debate. Uh, well, indeed. Now, look, I'm just going to, Patrick, just going to jump forward uh, just a little bit here. Uh, and then we'll come back to this if we can, because I've got these a little bit out of order, because I just want to highlight uh, this. Uh, this is Janet Street Porter uh, in the mail uh, a few days ago. Uh, Janet Street Porter, I'm not down and out and I can't afford £40,000 to fly to Dubai, so how can I get a vaccine? Um, and uh, this is really along uh, the same lines because if we look, scroll down this article and we, uh, we look at what she had originally or what look at what she's posted here, uh, she says, I couldn't be more thrilled that the Queen, Prince Philip and Joan Bakewell have now all had their jabs, uh, but have passed form as anything to go by and so on, right? So again, the big names being rolled out here, the Queen, Prince Philip and Joan Bakewell. Well, but that's not how it was originally written. And in fact, that's not how it was originally published uh, because uh, this is how it was originally written and published. That sentence said, I couldn't be more thrilled that the Queen, Prince Philip, Captain Tom uh, and Joan Bakewell have now all had their jobs, jabs. And of course, Captain Tom uh, passed away just two or three days ago. At the ripe age of 100. 100, yes, absolutely. But the point is that the Daily Mail has removed the words Captain Tom from this article after it has been published with no clarification on the article for why they've done that. Uh, now, was that, have they removed that information because uh, he hadn't actually received the vaccine? Or have they removed that information because it's embarrassing to the Daily Mail that Captain Tom died within a few days of the vaccine being delivered. Um, this is a very difficult thing to know, but I think there's definitely a question for press ethics here uh, in that they have not published any kind of uh, clarification on the article to explain why they've done that. They've just quietly removed the name. That's only going to fuel suspicion, right? That's only going to fuel questions that uh, maybe they're trying to divert the public away from a certain narrative that might be inconvenient to the kind of lockstep policy that we're seeing with mainstream media and government. And I might remind people, Mike, that we covered this from the beginning back in April, the amount of money the government is spending uh, on advertising, literally subsidizing and keeping the mainstream media afloat. We're talking about full back page spreads. Full, in, full front page spreads. Front page yep. spreads, internal spreads. They're paying above rack rate. They have booked hundreds of millions of pounds mm -hmm. in advertising to promote coronavirus uh, propaganda and restrictions. And you, you have to call it propaganda because some of the stuff is so manipulative now and so insidious. Act like you've got it. You've seen the mm -hmm. latest campaign. So uh, th that's a question for the Daily Mail. It's a legitimate question. Why did they remove... Uh, the Captain Tom's name from that particular article. Well, we have popped an email off to the Daily Mail to ask that question, whether it gets the right person or not, uh, and whether we get a response, I don't know. But as soon as we do, and if we do, we'll let you know. Um, okay, which brings us uh, back to this uh, from the BBC. Patrick, COVID, France restricts AstraZeneca vaccine to under 65s. Well, uh, like we said before, you know, is it safe? There's still some questions around safety for, guess who? For the elderly, for the quote, the vulnerable. So this really potentially turns the whole vaccine argument on its head. This is what's going on in France now. French health authorities have said that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine should only be given to people uh, aged under 65, under 65. Uh, is the latest recommendation from an EU member state approving the jab with such restrictions citing insufficient data on its efficacy for older people. What did they leave out there, Mike? I'm going to say that they left out a key word, which is not just efficacy, possibly, but safety mm. as well. So read into that what you will, Mike. But uh, isn't, isn't that interesting? It is interesting, particularly as we mentioned on Wednesday program, Wednesday's program in the context of the statement from, the, uh, uh, from Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, uh, that uh, Russian and Chinese vaccines would be uh, possibly given similar emergency authorization in the EU, but only 
if there's transparency from those companies and the data is made available. Well, actually, France seems to be saying this to Oxford at this point as well. So, so uh, maybe there's a little bit of consistency there. And there was also an article in The Lancet recently, which basically uh, a study on the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine, mm -hmm. and basically gave it a clean bill of health, no adverse reactions. Uh, in the 20,000 people in the test group that they had. So I'm not <laughs> saying that it's a, a great product. I'm not promoting any vaccines. We're mm -hmm. just saying uh, what The Lancet, uh, one of the top uh, British mm -hmm. medical journals has said regarding the Russian vaccine, that should set the cat among the pigeons, and shouldn't it, in, uh, in Whitehall? You would think so. You yes, think so. indeed. So the issue of, uh, of vaccines is an international issue, Mike, uh, and the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, has taken what looks like the most bold and interesting position so far of any other country uh, in the world. And, and brave, bearing in mind uh, the, the international rhetoric against Iran at the moment. Yes. They could be staring at a war at this point. Well, the, the, the West, led by the United States, has effectively declared war on Iran now for years, mm -hmm. uh, now since they've dropped the uh, JCPOA agreement and they put heavy sanctions on the country. S such heavy sanctions, Mike, that it's uh, uh, prevented them from getting the medical uh, materials uh, that they need to produce their own medicines mm -hmm. to fight the pandemic, the global pandemic and also other health crises that they have. They're under sanctions. So it's a total embargo economically on the country. So this is interesting. We were uh, passed this letter uh, just recently. The UK column has received this. is actually from the Iranian Academy of Medical Science. This is... Uh, so this is, a, this is an exclusive? Well, so far it is. This yes. is public. Uh, the UN have it. <laughs> right. The United Nations have it, and the Iranian press probably knows about it. Uh, but uh, this is a letter to... His Excellency Antonio Gutierrez, UN Secretary General, and this is really from, uh, yeah, this is from the Iranian Academy of Medical Sciences, and it's a very interesting piece, Mike. And if we look at this, it talks about a number of things. Certainly, it's looking at the uh, the issue of sanctions here, but then it goes on uh, to basically say, you know, we've got a major problem here with regards to uh, vaccines. And so it seems like there are uh, international companies and consortiums that want to sell uh, the Iranians the new mRNA vaccine. Mm. And that's where things get extremely interesting. It just starts off here. Now, this is quite uh, a, a lengthy pack passage, Mike, but I think it's important because people need to know what the Iranian government's position is here. And they start off by saying, while the meaning of your silence, he's saying that the, the UN has refused to respond to multiple letters from the Iranian Academy of Sciences and from the government on the issue of sanctions and also on the pandemic. While the meaning of your silence, UN Sec Secretary General, it's, he's talking to here, uh, and that of other human rights organizations in the face of these oppressive medical sanctions has never been clear to our medical community. But uh, what, did, what did the executive director of the WHO's health emergency program mean when he responded to our leader Ayatollah Khomeini's rejection of inadequately tested vaccines by saying, do not politicize this virus, said the, said the WHO during a recent press conference. So for us, the failure of the UN and the WHO to respond to inhumane US sanctions is what is politicized. Mm. So the Iranians here have turned it on its head, mm. uh, basically, and they go on to say, and they continue, uh, we are concerned that the WHO is biased in favor of inadequately tested American technology, which could risk many lives around the world in order to woo the US back into the organization. Nothing else explains why a senior WHO official would involve himself in the rational, measured, and scientific determinations of a member state, or referring to Iran there. And he continues, Iranian scientists have been working hard to produce corona vaccines that would, would have been produced earlier if not for the burden of sanctions. And we are willing to provide our population with vaccines or, uh, from a, any foreign source that we believe is reliable. Uh, what we should be wary of is about injecting people with mRNA vaccines produced in record time and based on technology never before licensed the long-term potential side effects are so unclear 
uh, that even citizens of the United States will not be allowed to hold the companies and government legally responsible. Okay, that is a fact. And also here is continuing, why would we purchase a vaccine from countries, companies that have not adequately proven their either their efficacy or safety and then test them on Iranians? The same people who have suffered enormously under the medical sanctions from these same countries. We know very well that the vaccines produced with the new mRNA technology do not provide any guarantee of long-term efficacy without side effects, even as many scientific sources point to the possibility, the possible long-term side effects, and that we, we are years away from obtaining the required data to pronounce it safe. They're really talking about the rush uh, to get it to market. And finally, we are sovereign in our decision to reject vaccines with dubious and inadequately tested technology, safety, or trustworthiness issues is our inalienable right. Uh, we would appreciate if you would not further politicize our decisions and support us by helping us access all of the medical equipment, technologies, medications, and reliable vaccines necessary to handle this pandemic. This is from uh, Saeed Ali Reza Mirandi. Dr. Saeed Ali Reza Morandi, he's a president of the Academy of Medical Sciences, Islamic Republic of Iran, highly ranking official, Mike, there. Uh, that's a pretty strong and bold statement. I have not heard that from any uh, government official in the world to date mm. until we saw that this morning. Okay, well, we'll see what the outcome of that will be with interest. Yeah. Uh, let's come back to the United Kingdom then. And uh, Patrick, we mentioned uh, a little bit about surge testing on Wednesday, uh, but this is really starting to, uh, to ramp up now. Sure, this is what they're talking about in the, in the great st strategy meetings, probably in uh, Sage and Matt Hancock's uh, dalliances uh, there in the Ministry of Health. So they're talking about surge testing for the South African variant. Uh, in England. What is this, Mike? This is a military term. Where have we heard the term surge before? Where do you remember the word surge? Well, Iraq, perhaps? Iraq, the troop surge. The, the surge worked. This is a big point of debate. So it's kind of a ridiculous strategic argument. Yeah, you plow in more, you know, you put 50,000 more troops on the ground in Iraq, and yeah, you might feel like you've got better control mm -hmm. of the situation. But what did it do? It actually created more of an insurgency in the long term. Mm -hmm. So just like the war on terror, the surge produced terrorists and produced ISIS, uh, the surge in, in the war on COVID is going to produce what? COVID, or at least uh, claims of COVID. PCR positive tests. So yes. they're talking about targeting areas that of their choosing, how are they going to decide whether they should surge test? Well, they decided on five or six uh, postcodes, large postcode areas, plus, uh, plus uh, Bristol and Liverpool. Um, so Someone who's not complying, maybe? Perhaps. No, this is what they did in Iraq. Al-Qaeda was spotted uh, outside of... Uh, Basra, so let's put a surge of troops in there, mm. and then what, that'll, that'll sort out, maybe a few bombing runs. So what they're, what they're going to do, Mike, is they, they could potentially surge test any area in the country, produce a lot of PCR-positive data, and guess what? That's going to tip the region into lockdown or into the tier system or whatever. So this is like, just like this was the dying strategy of the Iraq war, the surge testing is the dying strategy of the war to discover COVID uh, in the UK. It does look like the data is moving away from the government faster than they can try to uh, inflate the figures. Um, so there are fewer people dying, there are fewer people in the hospitals, there are fewer cases despite extra testing and so on. Uh, as, we as we come out of the winter, the normal winter flu season, um, and uh, it's now time to surge. Do you think it's gonna succeed? I think it's not, I think it's gonna fail. Yeah, spectacularly. I can see. Fact. I can see Boris coming up desperately as, as Bush did. We're going to surge test, surge test <laughs> Liverpool and up in Newcastle and Devon, Cornwall. Yes. Okay. Well, look. Uh, let's let's come on to lockdown then, uh, and the effects of lockdown and criticism of lockdown and the censorship as a result and vaccination as well. Uh, this is uh, Piers Corbyn's uh, uh, campaign site, Stop New Normal, uh, and. Uh, well, Piers Corbyn, as we mentioned on Extra Time on Wednesday, 
is a little bit in trouble at the moment because of uh, this. Uh, a, a leaflet was apparently distributed with this on it, but it's also on its website. Uh, and it's uh, a, a cartoon or a, a graphic, at least, uh, drawn by an artist uh, of the, the gates of Auschwitz. And it says on the uh, over the gates, vaccines are safe path to freedom. Um, and uh, so this was a response to a newspaper headline. Uh, and here it is from the Evening Standard, which was indeed vaccines are safe path to freedom. So what it says under the graphic is uh, www.stopnewnormal.net response to a recent farcical newspaper headline. Vaccines are actually a gateway to mor morbidity and mortality. Uh, this cynical newspaper headline, that's the Evening Standard one, is in the tradition of the Nazi slogan Arbeit macht frei. Uh, work sets you free. Uh, where, it, as in reality, the truth is the opposite. Now, this uh, uh, got uh, a response. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, Piers Corbyn was, was uh, ended up in the police station to, to give a statement. So uh, he has issued a, a statement over what happened to him. Uh, further to a police phone call, he said, on the 3rd of February, I volunteered to answer questions from police re-leaflets first issued in December at Woolworth Police Station. There, they formally arrested me to enable further que uh, fuller questioning uh, with which I fully cooperated. Uh, I, with my solicitor, gave a full detailed rebuttal of the claim of malicious communication. The police also looked in my flat and found nothing. The police made no charges. Uh, bail is to the 1st of March, so um, no charges have been issued just yet. Uh, we point out that the leaflet in the, the, we point out in the leaflet that the evening standard headline on the 27th of November, vaccines are safe path to freedom is a lie and horribly similar to the Nazi sign work sets you free on Auschwitz one work camp, uh, which he says was for left wingers, which was followed later by further totally horrific camps for Jews. Uh, we illustrate this point with an artist's drawing. Uh, the claim by police prompted by certain politicians that this was malicious or anti-Semitic is a monstrous attack on freedom of expression. Uh, when police and politicians choose what an artist does, we know we're in a dangerous place. So that's the statement that he made. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I'm afraid, I'm not afraid, I agree with his position on it. Um, I don't see anything particularly offensive in it. Uh, Piers Corbyn was married to a Jewish lady for 22 years. He is the last person that you could really be describing as anti-Semitic. It's a ridiculous slur. And really, I suspect that the, the slur has arisen because he was getting a bit close to the truth. Yes, it's a, you know, from a, from a taste point of view, depending on what your tastes are in terms of you know, graphic communication, you might choose to use other metaphors or examples. That's really up to the person creating the, the artist or the, the graphic artist, and in this case, Pierce Corbin, Mike. But you know, regardless of you know, what you might not approve of in that case, uh, it is clearly a free speech issue, and free speech should protect uh, his right of expression and making really what is borderline uh, satirical dark set satire stroke uh, a, a metaphor referencing a, a historic event in history and the fact that uh, his his uh, uh, detractors want to label that as quote anti-semitic I think is kind of uh, ridiculous mm. but what was even more interesting Mike is the police said they went and searched his flat mm. what on earth were, were they looking for the, the secret closet full of German paraphernalia from World War II. I mean, why why would it be required to? It wasn't a violent crime, or you know, he didn't break the law per se. But isn't that interesting? I think it's very interesting. I think the 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 uh, government, the local politicians, the police reaction to this, and the fact that Pierce Corbin in particular seems to be uh, labelled for special treatment. Well, how many other people are on a list for special treatment? This this is it's political, uh, totally political. Uh, and let's uh, move on with uh, political censorship. Uh, let me introduce you to Anna Sophie Harling. Uh, I'm not quite sure what age she is. I think she's about 26. I think if we if we've worked that out correctly, um, an amazing lady. Uh, and uh, she was tweeting this out this morning. Today, we're excited to launch HealthGuard, a free tool to help you determine the credibility of websites publishing information about COVID-19 and vaccines. Learn more at, uh, new, at the NewsGuard website um, and uh, some links to uh, various uh, Twitter accounts there, new, NewsGuard rating, uh, DCMS, which is the Department, of, uh, the, the, sorry, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and the World Health Organization. So who is this uh, lady 
Anna-Sophie. Well, uh, Anna-Sophie went to Yale University. She did journalism there. She hasn't really worked in journalism since then, um, but she is... Um, a, re a recent journalism school graduate. Yes, uh, certainly within the last four or five years. So uh, lots of experience in the field. None. Uh, so this is her uh, bio on the NewsGuard website. She is Managing Director, Europe Executive Vice Pres President Partnerships at NewsGuard. So 20, mid-20s, she's a Managing Director and she's uh, Executive Vice President of NewsGuard. This is quite amazing that she must be absolutely special. Clearly overqualified. Yes. Uh, based in London and New York. Uh, in 2020, she was selected to serve as a member of the Content Board of Ofcom. So she is on the board of Ofcom regulating content of broadcast media, uh, the UK's communications regulatory authority at the mid, in her mid-20s. What does she know about media in order to do that job at this stage in her career? Uh, prior to joining NewsGuard, she worked as business development manager for Lexu, a technology company in London, and at Clearly, uh, Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen and Hamilton, the international law firm, uh, she's previously worked for two German newspapers, what is an intern? Probably. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, Der Tag Spiegel, Spiegel and, one, and another one. So uh, she graduated from Yale University where she was a Yale journalism scholar. So let's have a look at HealthGuard then. Here they are. Uh, it is, of course, a plug-in for, uh, for your browser. Right. Uh, and it just works like NewsGuard. It will tag various websites with a, a red, amber and green a health rate, a rating health on truthfulness rating, yes. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, protect yourself from misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines and more with HealthGuard. Uh, it tells you if a site is reliable and you can browse online health information. So let's, I wonder who would be backing this because they've said that during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it's going to be free uh, because NewsGuard isn't free. You've got to pay a subscription for it, but HealthGuard is free in the meantime. So who could be behind this? Let's have a look. Well, Microsoft, uh, the Knight Foundation, Mount Sinai, and uh, who's that? Publicis Health Media uh, are the main corporate sponsors. Um, Knight Foundation, what do we know about them? Well, Knight Foundation are interesting. They're, quote, I believe they're a journalistic-related uh, organization. Uh, very dubious, uh, some of the members uh, of some of these organizations, Mike. This is establishment through and through. So clearly, this is about narrative management. Look at the top sponsors there. Uh, they're all major stakeholders in, in the pandemic and lockdown in, in the vaccine business as well. What you might call the medical industrial complex. And of course, Microsoft, they're, they've got their fingers in every pie. Uh, 100%. Uh, and uh, so NewsGuard themselves, well, they call themselves uh, the Internet Trust Tool. Now, this is all about trust on the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's a plug-in. You've got to pay a subscription for it. And it will give you uh, an analysis of any website that you go to. And of course, they have one for the UK column, which is, uh, as you would expect, full of lies, uh, Patrick. Uh, so you, so you, have to pay, you have to pay to be kind of given censorship direction? Yes. Uh, that's quite an amazing offering. So let's look at their corporate partners and, and colleagues. Uh, so who do we have? Microsoft again, uh, BT. Um, obviously Bing, MSN, uh, and so on. Department of Defense, Department of State, and the Department for Digital Culture, Media, and Sports. So we've got US and UK uh, government departments there. WHO. World Health Organization's on that list. Avaz is on the list, hardly surprising. Soros-backed sure. organization. The consensus-building NGO, Avaz. Yes, yes. They help to promote the war in Syria, promote the white helmets. Uh, so they're connected with a whole myriad of... Uh, of, of NGOs that are involved in all sorts of interesting things that are quite well aligned, Mike, with, with US foreign policy as well. Um, so this is another one of those uh, fact-checking uh, type organizations. Uh, we're going to start looking at a few more uh, and in more depth over the next coming uh, weeks and months because we are, are heading towards the online harms legislation being published by the uh, British government. It is going to have an effect on our ability to use uh, the internet and social media in the way that we've been using it up until now. And it is going to require social media to impose a much more rigorous uh, regulatory uh, policy and, and, and censorship policy. You see, you see now that the, uh, the, Mike, the, the visible pandemic is waning. They're really getting aggressive on the issue of vaccines with regards to censorship. You can see that's a central focus of all of these uh, initiatives, of all of these efforts. And, you know, this is incredibly dangerous. This is the last thing I'm going to say before we uh, go to our, our short uh, uh, information break in a minute, Mike. But 
This is incredibly dangerous, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, who, who are these uh, secret committees? They're, they're not transparent at all. They're totally opaque. Or do they have the expertise to determine, even these journalists who are working for these mainstream media outlets, who are they to basically say, what is the gold standard on public health? Uh, what is the final word on vaccines? Because what we've learned throughout history is that uh, something product that might be safe today uh, and the company's stock is riding high and everything's going great and all of a sudden uh, a problem hits and you have all these vaccine injuries, mm. you have deaths. This has happened before many times in history. So what is to say that that won't happen again? What I'm saying, Mike, and what other people are saying is that this is much more risky, this vaccine rollout for, corona, for the coronavirus vaccines. Why? Because it hasn't gone through all the same rigorous testing over years that all the other previous products have. So just by nature of introducing it into the general population, there is an inherently higher risk, wouldn't you agree, mm. uh, with this particular rollout as opposed to everything before that in history. So certainly people's skepticism or concern is more than warranted just on that basis uh, alone. Yeah. So we will see what the results are, but what happens, Mike, when social media firms, when NewsGuard, when mainstream media running hit piece, fact check pieces on people, calling them anti-vaxxers simply for reporting facts regarding reactions or deaths on vaccines, for instance, or not reporting at all, censorship by omission. Mm. I mean, this is a major public health issue. There's important information that's in the public interest. And if they're acting as gatekeepers and just completely whitewashing it, brushing it under the rug, and attacking people who are reporting on it, like Del Bigtree at the High Wire, mm. that is a major problem. With, with It's a major threat to public health. These organizations are conspiring and colluding to keep people in the dark on essential information. That is dangerous. Okay, so uh, let's just have a quick break. If you do like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, then please join us. Uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options for joining us there and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, but also uh, do share our material that goes out on other platforms as well as well as the material on the website. Uh, I just want to say thank you very much to everybody that's uh, been sharing Monday's news program. Uh, that's uh, over 100,000 views now, which is, uh, is pretty good. Um, of course, limited for ads because uh, we don't produce the right kind of content for ads on YouTube. But anyway, there you go. Well done to everybody that shared that and thank you very much. Um, well, Patrick, uh, this brings us uh, to Greta. Uh, what has Greta been doing? Well, Greta might have to take a break from Twitter uh, after what happened yesterday. There's a backlash against Greta. You can see the images here. These are people in India burning, burning pictures of Greta and also Rihanna as well. So a little bit of a backlash uh, from the uh, mercurial uh, angry Swede there. And here's the headline uh, from the Daily Mail. What are they saying? Uh, they're saying, yes, more global warming. Greta won't like, says the uh, protesters there. Uh, furious Indians burn posters of the eco-campaigner after she waded into the farmer protest dispute in India, sparking anger uh, and a police conspiracy probe. And uh, so apparently Greta shared, then promptly deleted a toolkit with advice on what to post uh, in support of the farmers who are rallying against agricultural uh, reforms. Uh, and then what did she do after that? Well, she, the 18-year-old climate activist then tweeted uh, an updated version of the kit uh, whose creators are now under investigation by New Delhi police for criminal conspiracy and sedition. Uh, so here's, here's a, just a shot of uh, what she was um, uh, sharing there. I think this is a Google document uh, that was, was being shared widely. So basically, what is this, Mike? This is political strategies. Uh, in terms of you know information warfare, so clearly she's taking the side uh, of the farmers in this particular issue, and you know you you fair enough you can you're you're welcome to take a side on this issue, but it, there's definitely an ethnic component with it. You've got the sort of the Hindu nationalist uh, party really opposing her on this, so it's it's become a very political issue. But what it's shown, Mike, is that uh, maybe the people of India aren't keen, all of them, in having somebody brigading from outside the country uh, into their internal affairs. 
and using it to try to mobilize uh, support for or against uh, in this case. But I think she was a bit shocked. And, uh, at the response, but, but the response, it's, it's hardly yeah. surprising. She's published, published by accident or not, she's published a press kit. Well, so what's this about? This is about pushing uh, narratives into a country. Uh, so this is very similar to what the British Foreign Office does, uh, what BBC Media Action with does. With Syria. With Syria. Uh, and, and so you go in, you find out who the... Uh, how the op who the opposition people who, are, who you the give change, them change agents. who the change agents are. You give them the narratives that you think are going to work, uh, and you help them to build those narratives in in a foreign country. This is uh, what is Greta involved in here? What it shows, Mike, is that she's not just some innocuous young uh, teenage activist. That she's she has a political machine behind her. She has a multi million dollar PR machine behind her from day one. From the, the whole story of Greta Thunberg was, was engineered from the first day. And if you don't believe us, go to the wrong kind of green, Corey Morningstar's blog, and look at the whole series on uh, the, the, the making of Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. And it'll show from day one how her whole story was scripted. And there are some major interests, uh, financial interests as well, connected to her. Mm -hmm. uh, green financial interests, uh, to be specific. Uh, now, last Friday, you were on the program as usual, of course, uh, and we were pointing out that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin had been speaking at the Davos uh, virtual conference, uh, and he had said this, in some areas there are de facto competing with states, they are de facto competing with states, and he was talking about social media companies. Their audiences consist of billions of users that pass a considerable part of their lives in these ecosystems. Uh, and uh, we made the point that uh, you had suggested the, the same thing quite a few years uh, earlier uh, within this article, Cashless Society, Facebook Nation unveils its new virtual currency. Uh, so this is... Uh, uh, it was back in 2011. I was, I was young and naive yes. back then. Well, uh, it looks like we're heading in this direction, Patrick, uh, because this is Associated Press uh, reporting uh, Nevada bill would allow tech companies... Uh, to create governments. So what are they saying? They're saying planned legislation to establish new business areas in Nevada would allow technology companies to effectively form separate local governments. So this is uh, this was announced at the State of the State address, which delivered uh, a week or so ago. Um, and it would bring new businesses at the forefront of what they describe as groundbreaking technologies. Uh, without the use of tax abatements or other publicly funded incentive packages, uh, that previously helped Nevada attract companies like Tesla. Um, and uh, so what are they saying? If you own, you have to own at least 78 square miles uh, of undeveloped, uninhabited land uh, within a single county, uh, but separate from any city, town or tax increment area. Now, the United States certainly has plenty of land uh, that would qualify. Um, and so if you're a tech company and buy up uh, that sort of amount of land, uh, they're basically going to give you the same power as as a, a district or a county council, um, and this is uh, a local authority. A local authority, a, yes. A corporate government. We're talking yes. about a corporate entity becoming having the same powers as as government. It's like uh, RoboCop. No, it's the plot from RoboCop. Yes, in the eighties. Now this might seem like a small thing because it's Nevada and it's uh, you know it, it's only in one state. But these things get piloted and then they get rolled out. And when you put this in the context of smart cities, uh, the global cities uh, and the, the devolution and the, the balkanization of, of nations that we're seeing in the UK, we're seeing the massive devolution, not just uh, between the four nations of the United Kingdom, but also at uh, regional and city level as well. Mm. Um, this is uh, just another uh, part of that puzzle being put into place. Um, and it's looking very, very much like tech companies probably have the desire to become these types of, uh, end up with these types of powers. Without a doubt. Yes. Without Now, Nevada is interesting, Mike, and no doubt the state's doing this to attract uh, some of these big corporations maybe to relocate. There's a massive exodus right now from the state of California. This is well documented. Mm -hmm. Companies, Oracle, uh, all these other tech companies, Elon Musk moving to Texas as well, moving mm -hmm. uh, his operations away from California, away from the tax burden, the regulation burden. So there's a competition for high-earning individuals, for companies uh, around the country. And so and Nevada is definitely doing this, I think, also to show that they're very friendly towards corporations, 
parlor, uh, which has been recently taken down in, a mm -hmm. few weeks ago uh, by all of its service providers, they're also based outside of Las Vegas. Uh, in Henderson as well. So in, in, there's other companies as well, that Zapatos, the uh, online shoe company, they're based in Las Vegas. So it is an attractive market for a lot of people. Uh, but I'll also say, Mike, that the majority of land uh, in the Western states, especially, especially in states like Nevada, is federal land. Okay, that's not the same uh, in the East Coast or in the sort of parts of the Midwest. As the further you get west, the, the larger land holdings are federal land. So the biggest landowner in Nevada is clearly the federal government. Mm. And if you look at how many military bases are also located in these western states, they are also have full autonomy. So it's a sort, sort of similar situation. Mm. But who's got the cash right now? It's the tech giants. Who could afford to buy large tracts of land? It's the tech giants. And, the amount, and what I think as well is coming here, Mike, is the amount of money that's going to be available via subsidies from the from the Biden administration for the Green New Deal? They're going to be plowing money mm. into solar projects. Nevada has hosted some of the biggest solar projects. All of them are a lot of them are abject failures in terms of technology. They're just giant pink elephants. If you drive through southern Nevada, you'll see some of these solar farms. Okay, so with all of this land available, I'm guessing, Mike, that it's not just the Facebooks of the world in the Amazons of the world, but I think this is gonna be in terms of green tech. That's what I think this might be a prelude to. We'll see if I'm right or not in a year's time. Yes, okay. Okay, uh, now, US foreign policy, new, new president, well, what's he up to? He's the, they're calling him the pandemic president, Mike. This is fast becoming Joe's nickname. So there he is, Joe Biden. He's, he's there most of the time, but we're not sure whether he's coming or going. He's got that sort of Mr. Magoo vibe uh, going right now. So U U.S. foreign policy under Biden, Mike, what's going on? What's going to happen in the Middle East? This is the big question. Uh, well, he has uh, just announced the war in Yemen must end. Uh, the BBC, many others, very, very happy about this. They're saying this is a major uh, policy shift uh, and that he's going to uh, do all kinds of things to end the, uh, the war in Yemen. Is that going to happen? Is he really? Is he really? Or is that just something he's read off the paper that was dropped on his desk in front of them. I think they'll first have to give a map of the region so Biden knows where Yemen is. I think he probably knew where Yemen was a few years ago, but things are getting a bit cloudy these days. But is this really the case? So let's look at this. Well, some canny Middle Eastern commentators who have also been on this show before, Mike, one of them, of course, is Marwa Osman in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, host of the Mideast stream on press TV, and this is what she said. No, Biden did not declare the end of the war in Yemen. We learned the hard way to listen to every word the Americans say. Uh, he declared ending American support for offensive Saudi operations in Yemen, end of quote. He did not say ending Saudi operations. On the contrary, he declared the U.S. will, and she, she continues, the U.S. will support Saudi Arabia in all defensive operations. So you can see it's just a slight twist of the language there, which the Democrats are incredibly adept at, which Marwa will explain now. She says, really now, so the U.S. will not support uh, the dropping of bombs, but will not stop Saudis from doing so. Saudis will drop the bomb, and when the Yemeni armed forces retaliate, U.S. will, quote, support Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, in quote, defending himself. This is a very interesting analysis. And she rounds this off by saying, that is the main difference between Trump the idiot and Biden the sly. Trump was a disaster, but he always said, said it like it is. Biden, on the other hand, is wearing the American hero cape uh, while deceiving everybody into thinking he is not a warmongering psychopath. Wow, what a, what a fantastic, accurate, frank, analysis, brutally frank analysis by, by Marwa Osman in Lebanon. Yes. Uh, now, in the meantime, of course, uh, the British government getting very upset about what's happening to Alexei Navalny in uh, Russia. He's just been put in prison. Uh, and the Daily Mail here saying thousands of Russians post selfies wearing red tops to show support of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny's wife. Uh, as they repeat his words, don't be sad, everything will be fine. Well, um, that's okay, everything will be fine, uh, except that uh, Russia Today had an article a couple of days ago 
uh, which said this, a top Navalny aide asked alleged British spy for millions in funding intelligence video released by Russians FSB claims to reveal. Now this is very interesting because there is a video clip on that, uh, on that article which apparently shows uh, Navalny's aide meeting with this gentleman, James Ford, uh, who describes himself on his Twitter feed as a British diplomat in Brussels, uh, European foreign policy, Russia, Turkey, Balkans, Middle East, previously in Moscow, Paris, Ankara, English, Swedish family is how he describes himself on Twitter. Uh, but this really has to be seen in the context of the recent document drops that uh, have appeared uh, via uh, Anonymous, um, which is showing exactly this type of operation funded through the Foreign Office, Conflict Sec uh, Security Stability Fund and so on, right? Uh, and But the, the uh, RT article saying that they believe, uh, or the FSB believes that Ford is an MI6 agent. They've given no proof of that. Uh, there's very little on the internet that can be uh, shown that he is, uh, but he is uh, or was a member of the British delegation at the annual uh, UK-Russia Human Rights Dialogue. Uh, it was led by uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office's Eastern Europe and Central Asia Director Colin Roberts. Uh, and uh, well, Colin Roberts, I believe, is uh, or is MI6. So uh, it's very, very hard to know exactly whether Ford is uh, British intelligence. Certainly, British Foreign Office involvement in uh, providing money to Navalny seems to be indicated by this video clip. And again, we've got uh, British money going into opposition um, uh, campaigns around the world. Uh, we've got to be asking our, our government what they're up to. Of course, the Navalny camp's going to say, no, no, this is just uh, Russian disinformation. They've set it up, it's not real. Um, I don't do we still have that uh, Navalny video? Oh, we do indeed, yes. Well, th this is interesting. You've got that ready to yes, go? Yes, ready to okay. go. Okay, let me just get this straight, okay? Alexei Navalny is, is sort of branded as the de democratic opposition in Russia. The hero, he's feted by the West, the, quote, opposition leader uh, in Russia. He's not the leading opposition uh, in Russia. I would say, actually, the Communist Party is probably in second place mm. right now in, in the Russian Federation, but nonetheless... He's loved on CNN. He's loved in the West. And so who is Alexei Navalny? What, is, what are his politics? Is he a, a, a woke, liberal uh, reformer? Well, he must be because we're giving him money, surely. But in fact, what is he really? He is regarded in Russia as far-right, xenophobic, and uh, by many people, a sort of a proto-fascist. Okay, And this is completely lost by the Western media. Nobody's talking about this. Let's roll this video. This is Alexei Navalny uh, putting out his uh, anti-immigration campaigning. But watch this and look closely. Здравствуйте. Сегодня мы поговорим о борьбе с насекомыми. Никто из нас не застрахован от того, что в наш дом заползет таракан. Фу. Ну или форточку залетит муха. Все мы знаем, что от мух отлично помогает мухобойка, а от тараканов тапка. Но что делать, если таракан окажется слишком велик, а муха и в меру агрессивна? Ну а в этом случае я рекомендую пистолет. Right. He's so woke, isn't he? Yes. He's so woke. That, that, that's what you call a far-right, uh, white supremacist, white nationalist. The real thing, actually. And that's who... And that's who the West is promoting, and the British government, the US government, are promoting as hard as they possibly can at the moment. That's exactly who they're pushing and promoting. So uh, if, if, uh, if Navalny uh, did succeed in, in ousting uh, Putin, which isn't going to happen, but if he did, what kind of Russia would that uh, become? Um, it would become uh, a lot more scary in, in many ways, uh, probably from a human rights point of view, a lot more brutal. So this, this, they've been constantly doing this, trying to uh, uh, package Vladimir Putin as this kind of, you know, uh, next version of Hitler, etc. It's given him the Hitler treatment. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a moderate in comparison to someone like uh, Alexei Navalny, which is precisely why Navalny will never have a mandate. In Russia, he'll never be elected. 
to anything in Russia. He just doesn't have broad appeal. I mean, people in Russia know about those types of adverts. Mm. And by the way, we can't vouch for the translation on that video, but if there's anybody out there that's uh, uh, an expert in Russia in English, if you want to double check the subtitles on that, we're pretty sure they're accurate, but we're just throwing that out there uh, to any of our, uh, to crowdsource uh, any corrections on that translation. Yes. Okay, well, um, let's, uh, let's move on then. Uh, and uh, well, Britain should vaccinate its way out of lockdown by April the 7th. So the lockdown narrative is being built by the Daily Mail here. Patrick, uh, what's this really about? I think that where we're heading is uh, we're gonna vaccinate our way out of uh, lockdown by April the 7th, but maybe if there aren't so many people that take up the vaccine, uh, that'll be an excuse for keeping the lockdown in place. Or more to the point, uh, that will be the excuse for demonizing anybody who is vaccine hesitant. Uh, it'll be used to bludgeon anybody that doesn't want to take the vaccine over the head. Uh, they'll be bludgeoned over the head on the basis that we're holding the entire country to ransom. Right. So more manipulation, yes. basically. So, yeah. Right. But in France, then, uh, here is the uh, French Prime Minister, Jean Castex, uh, and he's saying this, uh, the potential advantages of a third nationwide lockdown in the fight against the spread of the coronavirus had to be weighed against the cost of economic, social, human, and sometimes even health terms. Uh, and uh, so the, he is saying absolutely clearly that France will not be imposing a third national lockdown should, uh, should they get out of the uh, current curfew situ situation that they're in at the moment. But he could be overruled. Uh, we, we don't know yet, but... It's interesting that he's saying that. Uh, well, it, well, first of all, can we believe any politician and any word that comes out of their mouths? Probably not. Nonetheless, he is, there is at least a recognition there that, that, that there is a cost, an economic cost. We're going to come on to the economic cost in the UK in a second, uh, but a massive economic cost to these continued lockdowns. It's and taken them 12 months to... Uh, to recognise that. Yeah, that's quite a slow process, but nonetheless. Indeed, but in the meantime, uh, here in the UK, of course, uh, the lockdown continues and uh, more quarantining. Well, this is interesting. Uh, this was on the, the Times uh, this morning, Mike, uh, among other interesting things, as you might well know, if you follow the Times, it's, it's really the in-house newsletter uh, for the uh, British deep state. So if you wanna know what's coming down the pipeline, uh, that's not very good and dark, always check out the Times. A COVID quarantine hotels to take 44,000 arrivals a month. So they're really going the Singapore route here, Mike, uh, which is that everybody who arrives in the country uh, needs to go into sort of a hermetically sealed environment, probably on a COVID bus to the COVID hotel uh, where they're going to quarantine. This is interesting. This is the part that got me, Mike. More than 1,400 people a day arriving in Britain from 33 high-risk countries will have to pay 1,000 pounds out of their pockets for 11 days uh, of hotel quarantine. Now, if that's not enough to put off visitors to the country, I don't know what is. That's just gonna get tacked on as a business expense, right? Mm -hmm. For corporates. But think about that, you lose uh, 11 days, plus you gotta fork out a grand for doing it. So they're, what are they doing, Mike? They're really passing the cost on aren't they too? Well, what, what I think they're really doing, Patrick, is subsidizing the, the hotel industry. As well. In, in the meantime, I think that's what's really behind this because you and I both know that uh, this quarantine is nonsense. Everybody has to take a so-called test 72 hours before they travel to the UK uh, and then they've got a quarantine on this end. Uh, this is a bung. More patchwork policy, right? Yes. To, to basically shore up something that's not working upstream uh, on, on policy. So yes. where does it end? Uh, indeed, but look, uh, where does the economic impact end? The Bank of England has uh, released its new monetary policy report for February 2021. The mainstream media is very exciting, excited about this. They're saying uh, that as a result, second lockdown, not as bad as the first. Well, right, okay, let's have a look and see just whether, whether that position is reasonable or not. Uh, but before we do, the front page of their report, um, I just thought the image was really interesting because of course they're promoting remote learning, uh, the education. We've got the child in front of the computer with the teacher on the computer and the child with her hand up like they're in class on a Zoom call. Which has been proven to be a total failure mm -hmm. so far. So this, this idea of remote learning, like it's actually a viable uh, substitute for in-person learning in classes. Uh, this is just being absolutely torn to pieces right now by a lot of educators. A lot of people are starting to speak up 
about this now, but here we have the Bank of England saying that this is utopia. Well, this is utopia. This is certainly, the Bank of England is very excited about uh, the policies that are being rolled out at the moment. So let's look at a couple of the graphs then from this. First of all, GDP. Uh, and uh, well, 100% is considered to be uh, quarter four of, tw of uh, 2019. Uh, and we can see that very quickly in 2020, we had a massive collapse uh, down to about 78%. Uh, so massive collapse. Uh, the uh, Bank of England claiming that that rebounded very, very quickly uh, about the mid uh, middle of 2020 in the summer uh, to up to around, uh, what's that, about 92% of where it was uh, in uh, at the end of uh, 2019. So still negative. But you'll notice that from, yeah, oh, for sure, absolutely. But you'll notice that from the middle of the summer, uh, the uh, rate of increase uh, absolutely tailed off very, very quickly, mm -hmm. almost flat uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, and then what they're saying is that in quarter one, we're going to see another four to five percent fall. So by the end of quarter one, uh, the Bank of England expects the UK economy to be 14 to 15 percent below where it was uh, before the start of the lockdown. Um, I think that is a fairly major disaster. That, of course, who are the companies that are going to be uh, suffering the most as a result of that. It's small businesses that don't have uh, the call on uh, credit from the banks, that don't have the call on credit from shareholders mm -hmm. and, and uh, can't issue bonds and these kinds of things. So they've no opportunity to raise money. That That is a representation that the man in the street is suffering uh, extremely badly. And you think this looks scary. Uh, put the debt to GDP ratio and overlay that on top of that, which of course they're not showing. Uh, which they didn't, they didn't mention. But let's, uh, let's look at another graph from this then, unemployment rate. Uh, and as you can see that the unemployment rate by uh, mid 2020, uh, they were saying was around, well, we know that it's around four and a half percent. So this, this graph really gives a range and the lighter colors uh, imply likelihood. So the, uh, as you reach the outside of this uh, fan, as they call it, uh, they're less likely to end up in, in those kinds of territories. But you can see very clearly that in 2021, the Bank of England expecting uh, the unemployment rate in the UK to rise to somewhere around the 78% uh, range uh, and then fall back down towards uh, 5, 4 to 5% uh, by 2024. This is not a rapid fall back down to uh, the new normal. Um, and uh, so there's going to be significant suffering in terms of unemployment uh, over the next three, four years. And uh, not only that, Mike, but in terms of governments always reporting things like unemployment, for instance, they're always going to be underestimating it. Usually governments, it's in their own interest never to show uh, the real figures. I would like to know what the provenance of these statistics are. Well, and, these, are just, do, uh, these are Bank of England estimates. So, but so you they can... fall foul of the usual... Uh, uh, chicanery with regards to generating unemployment statistics. I would say, Mike, that you know half of that are on you, you know some sort of welfare or universal basic income already, plus the ones who are undeclared unemployed, plus the gig economy. The real numbers, Mike, are probably upwards of fifteen percent. Yes, I think that's that's fair enough uh, thing to say. So, what did Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, have to say? Uh, the Monetary Policy Committee's central forecast assumes that COVID-related restrictions and people's health concerns weigh on activity in the near term, but that the vaccination program leads to those easing. Uh, and he went on to say, uh, such that GDP is projected to recover strongly from the second quarter of 2021 onwards as towards pre-COVID levels in your dreams. That is not going to happen anytime soon because the fundamental building blocks of the uh, UK economy, as they were since we have moved away from uh, a product productive economy to a sort of con consumption economy, uh, have been pulled out from under people's feet. Are you saying that the governor of the Bank of England, Mike, is in, uh, in, in, in unicorn land? Uh, totally unicorn. I mean, for example, uh, he said that the reason that the economy is going to bounce back this, uh, as quickly as they project is because people are going to spend the money in the British economy that they wouldn't the, that they would normally have spent on foreign holidays, uh, and so they've just got all this money sloshing around that would have normally been spent on foreign holidays is going to be spent on something else instead. This is this is nonsense. Unless there's tiered lockdowns in Cornwall and Blackpool and all the great sort of British the British Riviera that could get tiered by Matt Hancock. Torquay could get shut down. Who knows? Well, look, the government has said they're not bringing the tears back. We assume the government is lying. 
Oh, there's plenty of tears to come, Mike. Yes, I think so. Don't you worry uh, about that. But uh, are, they, are, are there tears in France, uh, uh, Patrick? Because we mentioned that uh, France isn't going to go for a third lockdown, but not everybody in France seems to be obeying the rules uh, with respect to the second lockdown. No, as you might know, and as the people know, there's a, there's a curfew, a very strict curfew enforced uh, in France, uh, 6 p.m. till 6 a.m., because as you know, COVID is only active after 6 p.m. He sort yes. of comes out at night and sort of wreaks havoc amongst the population. So this is an interesting story here in France. Uh, the, uh, an orgy involving at least 81 people was raided by the police in France for breaking COVID rules. Partygoers were all fined for a breach of the curfew rules. And uh, this is interesting here. 81 people fined 135 euros each for breaking the curfew and three people uh, thought to be involved in organizing the Libertine Party uh, were taken in for questioning. So, you know, as they say, Mike, you can deprive a Frenchman of many things, but you can't deprive him of his wine, his uh, camembert, his baguettes, and of course, his, uh, his sex parties, yes. apparently. So, but this is, where, this is where I thought it got really interesting, Mike, here. The, the event was in breach of the curfew, and there were also problems with masks and social distancing. So one would think that would be the case, uh, wouldn't it? Uh, so apparently, Mike, the numbers uh, were actually higher than the 81 find, but uh, many scarpered uh, when the police arrived. So and the police remarked here uh, from the police sources that most of the people were mask compliant in a sort of Tom Cruise, eyes wide shut sort of fashion, apparently. And, uh, but we're breaking the curfew and we're not carrying their pandemic papers. So this is interesting. So there's a couple of interesting things, Mike, about, uh, about the, the France. There's no restrictions on private gatherings for private dinners. So they have all these COVID rules, but in terms of private gatherings, the only restriction is the size of your house, mm. how many people you can fit. So technically, if they had done their party during the day and had the right paperwork and sort of uh, were, uh, you know, in in terms of masking and all that, they might have been legal mm. according to French law. French law is funny like that. So here's what you need to carry uh, in France to be legal. You need to download one of these papers from the internet, from the French government's website. We'll translate that into English for you here. And so this is the uh, exemption certificate during curfew hours. So if they had this, they might have had a better chance, Mike. And if you go, this is the English translation here. It's very interesting, all the various uh, 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 dispensations that you can claim here for being out and about. So you could say that uh, this was an uh, activity, uh, you know, they even allow for people who have addiction problems, Mike, in this. So they could use the Michael Douglas uh, excuse on this party. But, you know, just in all serious, Mike, this is what the situation is in France right now. Let me see your papers, please. Mm. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that France of all countries? Yes. Of all countries, la résistance. Uh, so yeah, papier, s'il vous plaît, mm. as they say. That's where we are. Okay, well, look, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, hope you have a great weekend and we will see you then. Bye-bye.